ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for What Do You Call It Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What Do You Call It Podcast. I'm your host, GB, and I'd like to welcome back my good friend, Shane Ryan, who will be co-hosting a special interview with me today. Shane, how are you doing today, quickly? Yeah, excited. Awesome. I know you are. I know you are. Uh, the reason that you, you are excited, and I'm excited myself, uh, today's guest is an established filmmaker who is known for his work in sports documentaries. Uh, his work actually includes The Four Year Plan, The United Way, and I Am Durant. How are you doing today, Matt? Thank you for joining us, by the way. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is absolute pleasure. As I messaged you earlier uh, in the month, it's I'm literally buzzing, especially to talk about the four-year plan. And uh, not only is it one of the best football-related documentaries, it is one of the best documentaries that I have personally seen. So before we discuss your work, uh, I'd like to actually like to speak to you quickly about how you got into media, because uh, I think it might be interesting for any graduates uh, that might be listening to this podcast, or even someone like myself. You know, I did go to university for it, but I didn't succeed. So did you go to college or university? Well, I went to university, but I wouldn't say that that was particularly influential in my career, if mm -hmm. I'm really honest. I think what university gave me a chance to do was gravitate towards like-minded people. And when you're, you know, 18, 19, 20, there's a real energy and, um, you know, a sort of naivety about you, about what you can achieve. But that that's great, that naivety, because it doesn't hold you back. You've got no... You've got no handbrake on. So I think university for me, I got inspired by other people and it gave me the confidence. But I don't think I learned necessarily the mechanics or the, the technical in part of the industry or anything like that. I sort of I sort of fell into filmmaking without realising it when I was about 14 years old mm. and used to hook up two VCRs and edit things together without even realising what I was doing. I don't know why I was doing it even. I didn't even know what editing was, yeah. um, but weirdly, I was editing without knowing it. I'm not an editor still to this day, um, but, you know, there was the principle of, of understanding the language of filmmaking, presumably at that point. Um, and, you know, we're sort of products of our environment. And probably at that time, my environment was so heavily like, I just loved watching TV and film. <laughs> not, not the, I went out and did sport as well, but, you know. I did watch a lot of film and TV. So you, you sort of mm. viral osmosis, you're understanding more about how cuts and rhythm goes and all that sort of thing. And then, yeah, I went off to university and then I knew I knew I wanted to do this. So managed to get like work experience off the back of university. And, and um, I bought, I've got a video camera as well. I've saved up and bought a video camera and that sort of thing. So you don't really know what you're doing at the time. You know, it just sort of happens. And then you reflect on yeah. it. Oh, it's probably quite important at the time. So how would you sort of... Um... That sort of end up doing running work. So you become like a runner uh, early in your career. Uh, was that during uni as well, or was that straight after? I know you said about getting experience in your own stuff, but um... yeah, I did a bit. A summer holidays are really long at university, and mm. you know, I sort of I had the odd little job, but I thought, well, you know, it's probably a good chance. So I grew up down in the West Country, so I went and did work experience at like HTV West, and you know, those sort of BBC Bristol and. So, you know, there's opportunity to do those things. I thought I might as well use my time sensibly. And probably my mum was tired of me getting up at midday every day anyway, um, when you're a student. So, yeah, and then off the back of university, I decided not to go back to the West Country because chances were really limited in the industry. So I just applied for loads of jobs in London and um, uh, got, you know, got some work experience. And... I was really lucky in that work experience. I managed to get some paid work within the same company, which is quite rare. Yeah. Um, and I was really motivated to try and do something like that as well. So that was my pathway, really. It's not easy, though. I mean, then that contract finishes. You basically spat out your freelance day. You, you become so used to the freelance model really early on. and um, But, you know, I sort of stuck with it, luckily. No, that's good, mate. That's good. And just before we discuss um, the four-year plan, because I'm absolutely buzzing to, uh, to talk about that. Uh, I really am. I actually want to talk about one of your earlier uh, works. Uh, sort of, it was actually um, being a director for Rio Ferdinand's World Cup wind-ups. 
I just want to ask, how did you basically get involved in that project? Because I know it was during the World Cup in 2006, and I know even though it got sort of good ratings, but it did receive a little bit of backlash because of how England performed uh, in the World Cup. Okay, let me deal with the first part of that. Foot. So I, I, I ended up gravitating into sort of more of an entertainment side mm -hmm. of the industry. So I did a lot of entertainment, and then I ended up at MTV. MTV was brilliant at the time, and like the opportunities you had to just go and make stuff all the time was great. And I think off the back of that, then, you know, you start to get offers like this sort of, this real thing. And I, I wanted to do more sport. So I saw that as quite a nice little sort of segue into where I wanted my career to go. And I thought it was kind of a funny idea. And I met with Rio and we, you know, we got on, I'd like to think. And, um, you know, the ideas were pretty, pretty wacky. And I, I didn't think it was going to be achievable. I was like, there's no way you'll get this. No way, this will be canned after a while, but it'll be fun trying. Anyway, he delivered on everything he promised him and his management team. And he was really, he was fun to work with. He wasn't always, you know, I mean, Rio will probably admit this now because he's he's really slick now, but he was a bit greener back then. And he was a bit more difficult to produce. But, you know, I was younger as well. So we were learning a little bit at the time. But it ended up being quite a high profile show. Yeah. You know, it went out, I think, the week of the World Cup. Well, I can't remember, you know, we'd obviously been working on it for the previous months. And there were a couple of things that, you know, <laughs> Rio saying you've been murked. I remember having that conversation with him saying, let's not say that. But then, you know, it's difficult because he wanted to bring his own language to the to the show. And I had to respect that. And, yeah, you know, just a white middle class guy from the West Country. I've got to respect that that's not the tone of Rio Ferdinand as well. So we sort of. You know, we let that go. And in the end, that sort of didn't particularly go down very well. But, you know, fair play to Rio. He stuck by his guns. As for the sort of... It's funny, actually. What, what I really learned making that show was that that team were really together. Hmm. Like, it was actually a real pleasure to see how tight those individuals were. You heard all about these fractions. You even hear about it now. Say, oh, the Man United and the... Yeah, it probably did exist. But it wasn't hmm. as divided as people make out. And I saw it firsthand. And Rio was brilliant at, at sort of bridging those gaps. And, um, and you know, I think any backlash, I think, is really unjust, to be honest. I think that's just going to come, you yeah. know, they're, they're going to come at the, the players at whatever angle they can find, and that would have been one of them. I don't yeah. think anyone regrets yeah. making that show. I think it was actually, it'd be really hard to make that show these days, which says a lot about the relationships footballers have and management control. So... Actually, I look at it with a lot of fondness about a time and an era, and uh, it was it was great fun. It was such mm. a fun show to make. So, what was your uh, favourite wind up? By the way, I mean, I think the Gary Neville one was the best one. Yeah, I want to yeah, know what it was. Yeah, it wasn't going to. Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed that one because it was a really technical shoot, and then a lot of planning went into it, and we executed mm. it like bang on it was the first one we did as well so it's a lot of you know it was just everyone all the execs from ITV were there and there was a lot of pressure and and then the the actors were brilliant and Neville was just hilarious on it um and uh, I I actually I did an interview with Gary Neville about it's another story it never got used um I started the interview with him um about a year ago and uh I mentioned that oh you know I did that thing it was for ah oh, oh, still pissed off about that was the best one though, wasn't it? it? Was the best one, you know, like this. <laughs> so even the thing that he hated had to be the best of the of the of the yeah. series. So just, just uh, yeah. with with that um the golden, like Pete Golden generation, I know you're like a massive football fan. Just being close to them and getting to know them and stuff and watching, just as a football fan yourself, what do you think was the main reason, single most reason why that generation underachieved, uh, quote unquote underachieved? Because still think their quarterfinals was probably. I don't know. I mean, I wonder whether it was actually there was sort of they were in a bit of a transition period as to where professional footballers were going. So mm. I don't know whether they were sort of there was still a bit of a, a legacy of the the older era, yet they weren't catching up with this new professional. Like it, it really exceeded and sort of mm. outgrown itself football in a way in a weird way from the professional point of view. And I just don't know whether that generation really. Could they, they tried to sort of straddle both eras in a way and it didn't really work. And so now it's really, really slick and defined as to what footballers and professional footballers and England footballers are and how they operate. And back then it was a bit sort of, we've well, got to be really professional, but 
there's a legacy of being a bit loose at the same time. And I don't yeah. think that they kind of, they fell between a rock and a hard place in a way. I mean, they were talented for sure. Yeah. Very talented group of players, weren't they? But No, that's, that's an interesting point. You've got like early 2000s, Rio and John Terry known for sort of going out every, every night of the week. And then Benitez and Mourinho came in, changed it all, professionalised it. And they're kind of caught between both. And that, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, you'd love to see that talent under, you know, the sort of, the way that the FA is now with St George's Park and Gareth Southgate and, yeah. you know, the leadership there, you'd, you'd, it'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, to see how that that group of players will perform in this scenario. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Wicked, man. Is this the same time you set up your own production company, by the way, um, Ad Hoc uh, Films? Yeah. yeah, it was. So, again, there wasn't really a grand plan, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was... Um, I got to know another producer. In fact, I was working at Universal Television and I was working on, I was producing my own show and this other producer was producing his own show and we got put in a room together. I didn't even know this guy from Adam. And um, we started to chat and talk about ideas and, you know, we found that we had a real commonality with each other. His name's Dan Glynn. And um, I had no, I didn't know what, I, I just, we just came up with this idea, let's start a production company because we could possibly do, and I think we were talking about sort of small commercial projects, maybe like the odd behind the scenes documentary, because we had, you know, I, I had a lot of contacts in the music industry at that time. So I was thinking maybe we could do sort of music. You know, obviously I always wanted to do sport, but I, I couldn't see a road or a pathway to that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we sort of just, I think if you just sort of, you know, it's the old modeling, if you build something, it becomes real and then it has a life of its own. And that's yeah. how ad hoc really sort of is viewed by me. It wasn't really, it was almost like an accidental pregnancy and birth. <laughs> but then it became, you know, the love of my life as a child, if I can put it that way. Yeah. So with that QPR, QPR four-year plan, the, um, the kind of seminal uh, football documentary, I think, how did that come about? Was it something that you seeked actively or did it kind of fall onto you? And, and did you, no. you did seek it? Did you, did you look at that sort of chaotic... Yeah, not at all. Um, actually, that fell. It didn't fall on my lap. I got I got a call about about this job, about this documentary, from another company actually. And this other company were doing commercial work for the ArcelorMittal Corporation, of which you know, yeah. um, you know, ArcelorMittal. So I went to see them, and I sort of pitched what I would do this QPR documentary as. This was when the money had just come in and yeah. I didn't know anything about what they, what agreements they had or anything. And then they said, well, okay, yeah, sort of so we don't lose you onto another job because we think you might be quite good for this one. We'll give you some some little, uh, so I did some commercials for the, the Mittal stuff. And then this got up and running and um, it was the first season and it was a disaster and that the guys that had sort of done the deal with QPR wanted to just go back to doing the commercial work with the Midsales. They weren't really well, were very well versed in doing documentary and I'd got my teeth into it by that point. And um, so after the first season, the club, when I say the club, really, I'm talking Flavio, Bernie, Mittal, all said, well, that was kind of fun to film a year. It was an unmitigated disaster. Let's bin everything, you know, wash our hands of it and walk away. And the production company said, yep, yeah, we're, we're with you on that. And I said, no. And um, the production company said, well, we're not, you know, we're, we're done with it. They're clearly not going to put any more money in, basically, was their issue. And I said, well, I've got a load of great footage here. I still believe in this. You don't make a great story, you know, it, you don't get promoted just in your first season. It's very unlikely, but you know, there's a story here. And um, I said, I'll take it on. And that was then presented. I spoke to Amit about that. And Amit was, you know, Amit's not stupid. He said, well, look, if you're prepared to just take this on on your own, on your own dime, basically, we'll still allow you accreditation to the stadium. You can have access to the training ground. I'll talk to Flavio. I think Flavio was pretty like, no, I don't want it, I don't want it. And in the end, Amit sort of said, well, I want it. And it's not costing a penny. What have you got to lose? So then I sort of kept going. I always remember saying, like, just keep keep the pulse alive, you know, keep it alive. Don't kill yeah. it. 
it did get killed several times. I'm not going to lie, and that wasn't that was probably the 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 lesser of the hurdles we faced over the next two or three years, but kept it going. So I sort of picked up other bits of work along the way to subsidise continuing it, and then um, when when things started to turn around, you know, I could have that conversation with the board. And, you know, they, they, they all start to see themselves as investors in the film suddenly. So people were clamoring to invest a little bit more. It wasn't big money, but it was enough just to keep me filming, finish it. And that's how it got done, really, in the end. And um, I remember saying to Amit and him saying to me, we had, a, we had a meeting one day and it was during that last season. And again, there's no guarantees, but they were doing really well. And I said, look, whatever happens, I can't do any more on this. You know, I, I, can't, do another, I can't do another year on this. And he said, no, I don't want us to do another year on this. You know, I'm starting to think that you're bad luck, Matt. And um, <laughs> I'm starting to think that, you know, I can't go through just this obsession for another year. It, it, it burnt me out. So it was kind of like all or nothing to coin a, yeah, to quote another title from another documentary. But it really was all or nothing for us at that point. And um yeah, it was an amazing ending for, for so many reasons. You can imagine just personally what a, what a, a relief it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's almost imagine. like it's almost like um, something for Japan in the sense that it's supposed to be a redemption story, but then it turns into a bit of chaos. And similar with your one, you, you kind of landed in that that time period. But I just wanted to ask you, you said about Flavio and Bernie, and obviously maybe you know the, the, the footage. There's, there's certain what makes a documentary so unique and, and just to stand in when you're watching it is you're seeing the stuff about the mobile phones the masseuse the kind of the, the workings that we know about with owners um wanting to control you know things on the pitch you hear about it you know it goes on but to actually see it now you mentioned there about Flavio and Amit Flavio wasn't keen Amit was keen to to, to take it to another year how did they feel about that footage because it made them look bad did they even know how bad they looked were they happy for you to use it? Was there any challenges? And and quite frankly, how did you what how were you able to mic them up? They knew maybe subconsciously or maybe they didn't how they were acting. For them to actually be happy for that to actually go into the documentary, how did you manufacture that? Because it felt like times like they didn't even know the camera was there, but they're saying it's they're like saying, there's no filter. Yeah. It's like literally like it's a final wall. Yeah, I mean, I remember I remember really early on, sort of. Like, I always saw it as quite a long, long production anyway. So I wasn't really worried. At the first, I remember the first sort of month and a half, two months, I was getting very nothing, nothing. But I remember sort of not panicking, just thinking, like, gorillas in the mist, gorillas in the mist. Just get them used to you being around. And I would purposely shoot stuff that I would go home and delete immediately just as a process of them getting – because I knew the goal was going to come. But I, I had to get their trust. And I had to sort of just become part of the furniture. And to do that, you got to film the bland stuff. And the more bland stuff I could do, the more nuggets of gold I thought I could get away with. Because in the edit, you just discard the bland stuff. And mm. so I remember, I remember thinking like, God, this is this is painful. But just believe in, yeah, believe in the process. Believe in the process. And um, it did come good in the end. I mean, I think by by the time you know I'd sort of got a good six months into it. It was so, it was so natural for me to walk up to Flavio and say, I'm going to put a radio mic on you and him to either say not today or okay. And it was 50-50 and I didn't care in a way. I did care. That's silly. I, I understood that every time he said no, there were going to be occasions when he'd say yes as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I sort of invested in some pretty good, well, pretty good at the time, um, top mics and I would plant plant radio mics I, I say that like i would just put them on a table so they capture stuff and hope that they go and sit at that table and you do whatever you can basically and you know with regards to your question like did they mind what was going on? i don't think they had a clue what it was going to be come the end flavio stepped away during that last season but when the success happened he started to re-emerge and then he was more receptive to can i film a meeting with you and alejandro for example or gianni and Johnny was Johnny was pretty much constant throughout. Like he was good to me, Johnny. Beginning, he he didn't want to do it. I think he then sort of just towed the party line, and then I built up, you know, a, a, a close relationship with Johnny, whereby 
like I never I never build a relationship that compromises the work. I think that's really important to note. Like even like I'm really you know I got really close with Amit, but Amit always understood that I was there to do a job, and he respected mm. that. And the same like Gianni was you know like just Gianni. He's quite you know he's a funny guy, and we would we would have a giggle together. But you know at the end of the day, he knew that I was there to do a job as well. So so come the, come the end, you know when we had all this footage, and and I'd been editing it all the way through, but they'd not really seen much. From, certainly from the last year and a half, I was a bit worried. I was worried. I mean, I had to get Flavio's signature and I just didn't think I was ever going to get it. So he watched the film. I did. Yeah, he watched the film and uh, we had a meeting in Cipriani's in Mayfair. It was like walking into a scene in The Sopranos or something. And he just, he eyeballed me across the, the, the table. <laughs> And he said, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sign." And um, I think I've told this story publicly. If I haven't, then it, it's quite cheeky what I did. No. I um, I said, "Flavio, let, let's not be too bold here. You know, this is brilliant. You come across so natural. You know, you're you're, you're the Don, all this sort of thing." He wasn't buying it. And I, I sort of got a notepad out like this, and I said, "Oh, I did a audience. Um, I, I did a test screening the other day, and I hadn't." And um, can I just read you some of the feedback we got? And I literally started to read from a blank page, making stuff up. I was like, Ian from Ricelip, age 45. Flavio is an honest character on screen and that's to be admired. I just started like, like making it up. And Flavio was like, oh, okay. Let me have another think about it. <coughs> so I sort of, it was a bit cheeky. I, I told a white lie, should we say. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Flavio has in his time. And um, he said, I'm going to go and think about it. And then I got a call from an Italian film producer the week later. I'd never heard of this guy. Um, I Googled him and he was quite high up. He's, he's, he's got good, good pedigree. And he said, um, I'm a friend of Flavio's. He asked me to watch your film to advise him on whether he should sign off on it or not. And I was like, OK. And he goes, I think it's a masterpiece. I've told him to sign off on it. I was like, oh, grazie, grazie, grazie. And um yeah, then Flavio signed off, so I got away with it. <laughs> wow. Love it, mate. That's quality. I do think I do think Flavio for I mean I, I sort of weirdly like really admire Flavio. And for all of his idiosyncrasies and maybe his his manner isn't the way I would do things and all that, we can all judge people. That 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 let's not do that on this one. It's more what I admire about him is that he said, I probably come across a little bit unsavory to some people in this film, but I'm going to I'm going to allow it. And that's me. And I'm true to myself. And you can't help but admire people that are ballsy like that, can you? No, that is a really good point. Yeah. So With the fans. Was, oh, sorry, mate. I'll let you go first. I was going to say, how was Warnock very quickly? Because. Well, Warnock, first thing I said to Warnock when he walked, yeah, when he went, when I met him, I was like, we're not going to get on. I'm a Wednesdayite, and you know, you're obviously Sheffield United. And he was like, ah, oh, don't worry about that, son. And um, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely loved Neil Warnock. I thought he was, at, he was such a breath of fresh air. He was straight down the line with me. Again, like, I don't mind being told, get out of my face. I don't want you in here today. I like the clarity of that and you need that as a filmmaker and you know I'm not going to get all um offended by that yeah and Neil was like that and he was really sort of honest with me from the outset and uh, he didn't really know what I was doing and but he trusted you know when Amit would talk to him but he's strong enough to say no you know like he's not like get a toe the party line but he could see that I wasn't really operating in a particularly I wasn't trying it's not my style to get juice and dirt and all that sort of thing. You know, that wasn't what the film was about. I just wanted to make a really interesting football doc. And yeah. he became a really integral part of that. So I, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And he gave me a lovely call when he, he'd seen the film. And um, he incorrectly name-checked me in his autobiography. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're great pals, me and Neil. <laughs> I love it, man. He came across so well in that documentary. Uh, one thing I've got to ask is about the fans. Uh, obviously, we see them a bit of a roller coaster journey for them for the four years. And I want to know did you have any difficulty with them when you were filming around them? Because I know uh, for the scenes, you see them shouting at the owners, We want our QPR back. 
that sort of thing. I just want to know, how did you deal with it? Was there anything that we didn't necessarily see that you sort of had to control or get assistance from like security or anything? Um, there was a couple of occasions. I mean, particularly on away trips, fans get pretty um, oiled up and um, people don't like seeing cameras as well, which I, I actually really get like, and I respect. But, you know, it's my job. So sometimes you end up in a bit of a crossfire with someone who's quite oiled up. He sees you with a camera, immediately thinks the worst. And you're really not interested in getting anything on those guys. So you get a tap on the shoulder and you get a bit of verbals or something. And mm -hmm. I remember one guy, like, manhandling me and, and my camera. and all, But that's just... That it, yeah, it's just a bit of rough and tumble, isn't it? And yeah. All, all I care about is my camera, so I'm like cradling my camera. <laughs> <laughs> hit my face, it's not my camera. Um, so there's a few, there were a few occasions like that. Um, but then I think, I think I sort of, I probably, if I'm really honest, got my face got sort of known a little bit around the ground, and people would hear like, oh, there's a behind the scenes being made and there was more there was more sort of like QBR fans were amazing like there was more sort of love for the project than don't do this behind the scenes like there was always like what, what's the latest you know what's going on is it true what we heard on the radio and all this and yeah you know, and then you get the sort of in the know crowd who'd be like sort of telling me what what the story is and I'd be like yeah yeah all right yeah 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 <laughs> sort yeah. of entertaining them yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but there were, honestly QBR fans were just I loved my trips down to Loftus Road and a lot of the away trips and I loved talking to them and um like I got such an affection for that fan base and, and for that club I'm not gonna lie you can't spend that amount of time at a football club and then become so emotionally and professionally invested in the success or failure of that football club and not still care 10 years later. I really do, yeah. you know. What would you have done, uh, Matt, if uh, Flavio didn't want to sign it off? Would you have had to scrap the whole thing? Would you have had to take bits that he wanted out? Because you would have been absolutely gutted and spent all that well, time. It, it, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a film without Flavio. I mean, he, you know, exactly, he is... Yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah. so vital to the film. I even, I even read a review. No, it wasn't I can't even review. imagine it without him now, now that you said that. Yeah, I even, I even heard, I was talking to a guy who works for a brand that we work with, and he was like, yeah, I like that for you, Flav. Got really boring when Flavio dipped out there, didn't it? I was like, oh, cheers, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true in a way. Flavio was so box office that mm. you just couldn't take your eyes off him. I well, don't know the answer. As much as you would have but He didn't want to be. No, no Burnley, Burnley didn't want to be. I mean, I, I got one scene of him and it was it was gloriously revealing and enough of Bernie, I felt, when he was moaning about the price of water. Um, and I think that was that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, uh, to answer your question, like, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what I would have done if Flavio would have done that. I would have probably just, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Let's not think about it, eh? Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair, oh, man. Um, not just Shane and I, who absolutely adore, adore is the word I love to use for this documentary, because I love it. Um, anyone that is into football documentaries, let's go listen to this interview. Like, please pause, find it on Amazon, and please go watch it. I want to know, how did it feel for you after that long journey, uh, four years, basically, to receive the critical acclaim that it did? Um was there anyone in the football community, sort of high up, that even reached out to you that you didn't expect to hear from uh, about your work and, um, you know, the final products, basically? I think, um, like, how it felt, it, it was it was really exhausting by the end. And I, I remember one moment, and it was basically when they won the championship away at Watford and mm -hmm. they're celebrating in the, in the changing room. And I, I was, like, on a high, obviously. And I remember um, getting a train home. And I remember crossing, I live in South London, so I remember crossing the river and I was on the phone to my mum and I just burst out in tears. And I was like, I was like, I don't know where this has come from. It must have just been such a sort of welling up of, you know, I was exhausted by this mm. film at that point. And, you know, I suppose the one person that, that, that you want to be proud of you and you do a lot of things for are, you know, pet your parents. So it probably all just combined at the wrong time and crossing the river is quite picturesque. I don't know, I just burst into tears and, but it was it was a really nice moment actually. It was, it was nice to suddenly just sort of release that emotion, and I remember thinking like, 
I always remember thinking, like, I don't know how this film is going to go down, but I've given it my all. And that mm. was enough for me. Honestly, that was enough for me. I had no idea that it would be sort of like, suddenly you'd get requests to do press and we'd be talking about it 10 years. Honestly, I had no idea. I thought it might be a little byline in in the odd um, newspaper or magazine mm. or, you know, I, I honestly I had no idea. Um, that's how sort of in the weeds I was at that point. So, so yeah, it, it was really surprising. And then it was a really great time, obviously, when it got released because you know, it, it had an impact, it, it had an effect. And I think that <coughs> it's a, it was an inch, it was a time when you didn't get many sporting docs. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's, a, I don't know whether I'm pleased about that or not. <laughs> sort of, you know, I think it was really, I'm really proud that I did something when it wasn't like the norm at the time. But I also, so part of me thinks, well, wow, it might have a bigger audience now, you know, because more people are on that sort of the crest of this sports dots way. Yeah, like all, all the all the nothing series on Amazon and Sunderland Till I Die, you know, that oh, fly the wall, but a lot of them yeah, are. But, but then I also think, I don't want to make a film like that, so would I have made it differently as well if I'd have started it? I, I, you can't answer it, can you? But yeah. I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad it was a, uh, I was glad it was a film, not a series, because you know, the, the, the audience really gets its bang for its buck. You know, you, you start turning this into a... Yeah. People are putting one season into an eight-part, one eight-hour series now. I mean, that is slightly cheating an audience, unless you're a massive, massive fan of that club. Hmm. I'm not sure that's going to cut through. It does, don't get me wrong, but I think it's... I'm just really pleased that I got to do something that was a 90-minute film over four seasons rather than what's become the norm now, because I understand the economics drive it that way now, and content is king and all of that. And if I had the opportunity now, I would do that. I would do eight hours, but I've done my one, my 90 minute film, so I could probably feel a bit more comfortable about that. Now. Was there loads of other like goldmine stuff that you could have included to make it into a full pile? So much stuff you had to leave out. Yeah, there was. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I shot, you can imagine the volume of, material I shot mm. um but you start you know I mean I, I remember during the sort of the, the home straight on the edit and we cut some big scenes out that would have made like I say would have made a series eat no sweat but they were slightly off track from what the real message of the film was they were interesting but they didn't talk to this and I think every scene we chose in the end spoke to that theme power of, of money in football, control, you know what I mean? And, and and I think that those other scenes, as great as they were, they they really, like, it was really a case of, like, filtering and filtering and filtering till everything felt really bespoke and tailored for the film itself, not just to fill screen time or because it's quite interesting. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And obviously, some yeah. documentaries today, like, um, I don't think that the access that you got, I don't think clubs would grant that now. And I just look at, you know, the Spurs documentary over like four episodes and you could have literally fit all the good stuff in half an hour. I and mean, someone like you on the other end of the spectrum has probably got you know, eight hours worth of absolute gold. So in, in yeah. theory, you could have absolutely, you know, made a series that would have been, you know, even more, you know, seminal. So uh, maybe, you, what do you think about this? Do you think you're maybe the last kind of the last of, of your time in the set, do you think there's going to be someone else that will get the access? Because you've got boardroom access, chairman marked up, owners marked up. We don't see that even in the Sunderland one. We don't see that. Is it going to happen again? Well, I mean, I suppose it's twofold, that question. I mean, from a, a sort of narrative point of view, I took a stance early on that this was going to be about the ownership and yeah. the boardroom and the players and the manage, management to a lesser extent, but the players were less integral to the film itself. So we don't really go into the player because, I mean, championship level, they're not really the big names anyway. But this is about the ownership. And you've got to remember that 2007, 2008, that's when ownership became a big, big sort of shift in this country. So it felt really like um, a, sort of a, a moment in time that was important to reflect in football. So there is that side of things. 
I, I think that would would it be made now? I don't think clubs. I don't think clubs. Clubs see themselves as a as a brand, so they're not going to sign up for something that gives them ninety minutes of airtime when you've got eight hours of airtime as an alternative, and they're sort of able to just manipulate the situation or control the situation enough as well now that I don't think you'd get what we got with that. There were a lot of things that went into the four-year plan that were specific to that time, that club, those characters. A lot of it was luck. You know, I'm mm. not definitely a lot of it was luck. But the world's moved into a different direction now. And I, I definitely wouldn't sit here and criticise football docs as they stand now. It's evolved. And mm. anyone that can put together a season at Spurs or Arsenal's being done at the moment behind the scenes, that's a huge, huge undertaking. And it's not easy. And to make eight hours out of that is not easy. And there's clearly an audience for it. Mm. You know, there's an appetite for it. So, you know, you have to respect that. Um, so it's just changed. Things have just changed. Nah, awesome, mate. Awesome. Um, I'm glad that we got to talk about that. So as you can see in the background um, of your interview, it's the poster. It is a fantastic documentary. Go out and watch it, as I said earlier. Um, I want to talk about some of your recent work. If that's okay. So I want to talk about the the United Way documentary and I am Duran. So I want to talk about the United documentary first. A documentary of Manchester United and the city itself, narrated by Eric Cantona, legend, uh, featuring United legends. The star power for this documentary, by the way, is unreal. Beckham, Cole, Sheridan, the current Man United manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, I just basically want to ask, was this actually filmed during the pandemic, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Um... It was a really, really hard film to make. Yeah. I mean, I thought the plan was hard, but I mean, there, at least there wasn't a pandemic. So the United Way was, um, it was an interesting project, the evolution of it. But really, I wanted to work with Eric. You know, uh, Eric is something, on, he's on another level for me. Mm. And uh, Man United's story... <laughs> I didn't grow up liking Man United, and I've said that before. But, you know, I remember sort of pitching it and saying, everybody has a relationship with Man United, whether you're a fan or not. You love yeah. them or hate them. You just have a relationship with them because they've either given you moments of absolute joy or absolute misery in your life. And I can say that, you know, being a Sheffield Wednesday fan, I'm sure you guys can as well. So they they feel sort of socially really relevant and... You know, I'm I'm often quite interested in the sort of um, the sort of fabric that's around a sporting story, and I feel like Manchester is a really interesting city. Mm. So when I could pitch that to Eric, and he was, you know, the third sort of part of that spoke, so to speak, um, you know, the club, the city, and then Eric, and he he was really on board with that. And I just wanted to do something a bit different with Eric, and I felt like we could, you know, and we had lots of ideas that in the end we could never fulfill because of the pandemic, unfortunately. And that's why it was a really difficult film to put together, but we had a deadline and that deadline, I was going to say, did, did, wasn't going to shift. It did move back a couple of months, but it wasn't going to shift, you know, like a year and a half, you know, if we were making it now, we could be doing all sorts of other things with that film. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a great film to put together in many ways because the, just knowing that you've got Eric on board and then going out and getting these names and into, you know, I did sort of like 50 interviews and I made the choice that people are just going to talk within their period. So I don't want to hear David Beckham talk about Ron Atkinson. I just want him to talk about the period he was in. So everyone appears along this timeline. They come in and out, come in and out, come in and out. And, um, and then you've got Eric underpinning it. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, Sky were on board early and they were fantastic to work with. And uh, yeah, it was it was a relief to get it to get it out, though. It was a relief to get it done. And um, mm. I'm really proud of it Gary, for different reasons, that film. Gary Neville's still harboring a bit of a grudge for the wind-up to that one, wasn't it? You might have read between the lines there. That's just... Um, it's probably um, a, a story... There is a story there. I'm not sure yeah. I'm ready... I like Gary Neville, but um, he has his own media company. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that he struggles to share the the marketplace, particularly with little guys like Ad Hoc Films. So um, there was a bit of a, yeah, there's a bit of an issue with Gary at one point. Um, he's not in the film. That's a pity. But, you know, his mate Beckham is. Is that, is Alex Ferguson, do you try and get him on board? Yeah, um, uh, Alex Ferguson, like, it, that was just uh, continued no because he was doing his film at the time. Yeah, of course. Um, oh, yes, I forgot that. I said, to, I said to Eric, how do you feel about him not doing your film? And Eric was very um, philosophical about it, shall we say. Yeah. And I said, you know, are you going to do Alex's film? And he said, yeah, of course. And I spoke to the producers. So, you know, Eric's doing Sir Alex's film. You not think... Anyway... That was it. The decision from Sir Alex was not to do Eric's film, but Eric was, he's, he's such a, such a fantastic human being, Eric Cantona. Mm. He, mm. he wouldn't have seen that as a reason to not do Sir Alex's film. And no, I really respect that. Yeah. And actually, do you know what? I, I, I respect people's decision to appear or not to appear. And it sounds like I don't, but I really do. I, you know, people have different reasons and you have to, you can't, you're not entitled in this industry. I find it extraordinarily, I always find it surprising when people say, yeah, I'll do that film. You know, with Sylvester Sloan, Mike Tyson, Sugar Ray Leonard in my boxing film on Duran. Every time someone said yes, I was like, what, really? You're going to be in our film? You know, so mm. uh, that feeling never goes away. So everybody has their right to say yes or no, and I respect that. Just because you mentioned, oh sorry, Shane, there you go. No, I was just going to say, just because you mentioned Cantona, uh, you mentioned about being surprised when people say yes. Have you ever found yourself starstruck with any of the guests or interviews or celebrities that you have sort of come across? Not, not really, if I'm honest. And I don't mean that in a kind of. I just get into work mode. Um, yeah. I think the closest I've come to that was De Niro. In I, I interviewed De Niro in New York, mm. and that was different because. I felt myself suddenly thinking back to being, when I was talking to you guys earlier about being 14 years old and watching lots of films, it was De Niro films. I mean, it's the classic. So, you know, when I meet David Beckham, I was a, I was a grown man watching him pretty much as a footballer, but De Niro took me back to being a kid a little bit. And that was the, the most I felt like, whoa, this is, this is fucking huge. Sorry, my bad. This is huge. Cool, man. Cool. You know? <laughs> and I, I just, it was a pinch me moment, and I, I I loved I loved every minute of being in the same room as Robert De Niro. It felt again. Oh, how was he? Was he was he easy to deal with? The two sides of Robert De Niro. So yeah. he walked in, and he was like, "Gentlemen, I'm so sorry, I'm so late." And we're like, "Take as long as you want. You're absolutely <laughs> fine." And he's like walking around. He's in, he's he's sort of having a lovely chat with us, and he's really warm, you know, like friendly sort of Bob. And then he sits down and he hates doing interviews. And he turned into this like sort of shut down, really quick answers, one word. And I'm like, oh God, this is tough, man. De Niro is not giving me anything. <laughs> got enough out of him. We squeezed it out of him. We only had eight minutes with him anyway, because you can imagine he's pretty tight. Yeah. Um, but he had agreed to do it. I mean, that's the funny thing about De Niro. He's, I mean, the cameraman after, I used a local cameraman in, in New York and he said, Firstly, De Niro never does these sort of things anymore. And secondly, you got more out of him than I've seen him in the last 20 years. And you sort of think, why bother doing it though, De Niro? You know, like you don't need to do it. So he yeah. sort of he sort of agrees to do it. And then he just, he clearly hates doing these interviews. So he clams up a bit. Yeah. But I didn't care. I, honestly, I didn't care. He could have just sat there and not said a word for eight minutes. And I would have still like, you know, He's probably the opposite, of, opposite of someone who's, all nice in front of the camera, and then when the cameras are turned off, they turn into like, oh, it's probably the opposite of that. So as soon as yeah, the camera's yeah, on, he's the opposite. No, yeah, he, was, he wasn't grumpy or, or there was nothing negative. He just he just sort of clammed up a bit. That's the only way I yeah, can put yeah. it. Just very quickly, Matt, just just finally, we'll move on to I'm Duran in a sec. Um, with the United Way, um, obviously you're documenting that kind of what the club means, what they represent and stuff. Um, from Buzzbricks, you know, all the way through. What sort of inspired you to do that film? What was the idea um, behind that in terms of, you said it was mainly to, to get Eric involved. Was it almost, because the film's based around Eric and he's the centrepiece. 
was Eric basically the main the main reason for doing that film, kind of to give his kind of version of the United Way. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I think that really I wanted to. So when I spoke to Eric about it, he he wasn't interested in doing his own story, but he he liked the idea of contextualizing his part in the pantheon of Man United's history. So you understood yeah. why it was significant. It was a bigger it was a bigger theme, effectively. Like, why is Eric important in this big machine or this big history? Yeah. So, so that was the sort of driver, really. So it wasn't like, let's do a big history on Man United. And it wasn't like, let's do an Eric Cantona film. It was a bit of both, in a way. And, it, yeah, that was hard. That was really difficult remit to, to, to sort of drive in at. But where Eric really, what he really bit upon was the city. And when I said, you know, I'll, I'll make this so that the club is a product of its city and its people, like, that's when he, he really sort of bit on it. And... Um, and I, I knew that we could sort of deliver on that side of things as well. I, I feel, I feel like, um, I feel like you got you can't overcrank that sort of thing. Actually, you know, you see some things that are so sort of they get a bit cringy, and mm. I mean, you know, maybe I did at times or not. I don't know with the United Way, but you you certainly don't want to overcrank it. And I feel like with Manchester, Manchester's a cool city. Anyway, I, I feel like I get Manchester. So, um, yeah, I, I felt like I could sort of bring that, bring that sort of association with the people in the club and make it feel a bit more significant. And, you know, for me that grew up sort of not really liking Man United, it was an education as to why it's important to a lot of people that I'd not really considered before. And I think that was quite a, a key part of the film to, to get across. And then... Yeah, I, I wanted it to have a sort of sumptuous feel as well. So that's why we sort of chose the theatre set. I wanted it to mm. feel like a piece of theatre. Yeah, I really like that. The music yeah. as well. You know, the, it's got a big, big sound to it, this film. You know, we got a, an incredible composer, George Fenton, who's, you know, Hollywood royalty. And, um, you know, that, that sort of added to the, to the sort of scale of it. So I thought it was brilliant. Also, you said about not wanting to go to kind of, um, you know, Candy floss with it. I think the good thing that you had about documentary was it was almost you had you deviated up like the Atkinson era, the Tommy Do Tommy 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 Doherty era, just after the, the plane crash. So you weren't just glorifying Man United, United Way. You're talking about the downs as well, the ups and the downs. And I thought that's what gave it a real kind of substance. And actually, you know, a couple of people that I've spoken to, what they actually thought the Atkinson part, the sort of the eight or nine minutes of Ron Atkinson was the best part. Yeah, they didn't really know a lot about it. But I think the film really needed that. And yeah, I just thought I just thought it was fun. And also I like the fact that it wasn't just chronological from A to B, it was from A to C to A back to A again. Yeah. Kind of like the ESPN style. I just thought it really worked. But you know, I'm biased, I'm gonna say that because I'm you know a football nut, but I, I really enjoyed it. Well, I think it's interesting the well, the structure for a start. I mean, I think that I think you might lose an audience if you if you go linear on that because Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you need to remind people why they have a feeling about the club early. And you can't do that with footage from 1958 to 1974 to 1986. Unfortunately, you have to kind of... So that's why it was sort of... That was yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have to ping pong a bit. And I'd like to think that worked. I mean, that was, again, a, a struggle, but I, I think we got there. And I'd like to think we got there in the end. Oh, it did work. Actually, that really, that really helped with understanding Eric's so dripping Eric in you know fast forwarding to Eric and back that again sort of it substantiated his role again in that pantheon um mm. and, but the other point you made about Ron Atkinson that has been possibly the biggest feedback I get because yeah. people know the story really from the 90s on you know there's little bits and pieces they didn't know but the Atkinson era I think not many people knew enough about that yeah, and he's really, really entertaining as well. Like he's 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 box office, isn't he? Big Ron. I mean, crikey, yeah. he's he's had his misdemeanors and all that sort of thing. And again, but as as far as sort of a character goes, he's he's watchable, should we say? Mm. And the stories are very, um, you know, they're, they're they're funny, you know. And he adds a bit of light, yeah. doesn't he? After the shade of Tommy Doherty, 
So it works. You know, when you think about the sort of narrative of Man United, the ups and downs and the peaks and troughs and the light and shade, it sort of comes in and out and has quite a, a cinematic structure already as a club. Mm. So, um, yeah, but that, that, that's come to me a lot, that feedback about that section. It's, well, yes, uh, Man United is an entertainment factor of the 90s and there were an entertainment factor in the 80s as well, just in a different way. I was going to say as well, Strachan was brilliant. Yeah. He was brilliant. Yeah, Strachan was, was great. So um, when we teed up Strachan, my producer who, who's done stuff with him before said, it goes one of two ways with Gordon Strachan. He'll either turn up in a foul mood and be grumpy and you'll get nothing out of him, or he'll be the absolute, you know, shining star. And luckily we got, I mean, I imagine he was overplaying the grumpy side because Gordon Strachan's a really lovely, warm, funny, friendly bloke and he can tell a story as well. Yeah. Oh, awesome man it was a really good documentary I think Cantona for well, me personally was yeah. the highlight that's just my opinion um, but I, I'm, yeah, I'm a big Cantona fan though uh, the names as well just I know it's so I know, I've only got a small amount of experience of doing it compared to no, nothing but I know how difficult it is to get people on board and the fact that you got all those names for all those eras like, even Atkinson I know Atkinson was like but just just I was amazed like they just kept turning up and even like you know a brief cameo from like Teddy Sherman for like 30 seconds, it still just adds to the credence. And during the pandemic as well. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought just to get all those names on board just gave him so much credibility, like, because it would be so difficult to do it without that, but that part was still a good documentary as well. Well, I, I, I don't take any credit for that. I've got, you know, I had producers who are, you know, really experienced at getting these names and will have personal relationships with some of them got a black book to die for and those are the guys that got us all of these people i i you know hats off to them. you're only as good as those guys in in our industry you know the people that that can set things up that can have those conversations and they did a brilliant job oh, nice man as we are coming to the end of this interview there is a documentary i may have just skipped over but I want to briefly ask you about, because you have mentioned De Niro as well already, who was a part of the I Am Duran documentary. So you did direct this documentary based on a lot of boxing fans will say he's one of the best boxers of all time. So it actually involved a lot of star power like the United Way did as well. Mike Tyson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Sylvester Sloan, who I thought was probably the, the highlight of the, the documentary, in my opinion. Um, one thing I, that stood out to me wasn't necessarily the star power. It was actually the fact that you were filming in Panama. And I'd just like to ask, how was that for you, the experience? Well, my wife's from Panama, so it actually was really easy. Oh, sweet. <laughs> it was probably the easiest film I've ever had to make um, because, so I had the idea and I got to meet Roberto. I got to meet Roberto, oof, May 2014 it was, and... Um, Asked him if he'd be up for it, and he just wanted some money. So I, I got him on a, um, I sort of optioned him for a year, gave him some money. I said, right. And then couldn't get the film up and running. And then anyway, blah, blah, blah. But when I started to, like, we filmed a lot in the UK. We filmed in Milan for Hagler. We filmed in the States a lot, as you can imagine. But every time I had to film in Panama, it was actually really easy because Monique's family, my wife's called Monique, her family... Obviously, they're there still, and they could organise things on my behalf. And they were brilliant. And, um, you know, I, I, her uncle works for the Film Commission, so he, he would smooth the wheels on that side. And so I can't complain at all. It was so easy. I mean, you know, we even got Noriega in his prison. You know, his first interview he'd done on camera for 25 years and his last one before he died. That wouldn't have been possible without my own personal connections in Panama. And, you know, mm. I'm not one that um, has ever used, um, what's the word? Oh, I can't think of the word. Uh, you know, when you've got your own connections, uh, nepotism, sorry. So I've, yeah. never, I've never been nepotistic. I've never mm. had the opportunity to. But on this film, I absolutely had the chance to. And it benefited the film and it made my life so much easier. And... Um, I could uh, I could give you a story about the struggle and there were struggles but not like you know it could have been so I was very fortunate on that film. Are you uh, what gave you the idea to do that? Are you keen boxing fan? Is that an idea that you always wanted? To do? Yeah, yeah, keen boxing fan. And um, I actually met Roberto when I was doing the Ricky Hatton film. He came into the changing room 
And I was like, geez, that's for Bert Durrell. Like, what? what's he doing here? You know, and I started just filming him and I was like, oh, I've got to go back to Ricky. And Ricky was like, like a kid, you know, and he's just about to do his fight. And you just, you know, when someone walks in a room and you just know that they're on an, another level and Roberta yeah. had that. And it got me thinking, and I hadn't even met my wife at this point. And I, I bought his book. And then that autumn, I met my wife and I said, oh, Roberta Durrell, and everything fell in place. She said, well, our family kind of can, you know, it's a small place. Our family can get to him. You know, do you want to, you want to go out and see him? And that's how it, that's how it happened. And, but I'd already sort of had this idea by that point but Matt I had no idea how to do anything with it and I wouldn't have been able to do anything with it as well would have just been oh wouldn't it be cool to do a Roberto Duran documentary yeah that's never going to happen next you know <laughs> incredible no I wouldn't say anything I was, well I, yeah you're, you're the main host I, I was going to ask but we'll probably come to it anyway what what's next in the pipeline Matt have you, have you got any ideas any ambitions things that you you know, have that you want to do? Yeah, I, I, I want to do another. I, do, I actually <laughs> take it all back about series. If the right series presented itself, I wouldn't mind having a crack at a series, but I'd want to probably do a mini-series. Um, so there's a few ideas bubbling on that. I've got one idea on a, on a film that I love and I'm very passionate about. But I can't get any in the, anyone in the industry to, to to bite on it yet. But bear in mind that's happened with every single one of my projects so far. So you know that's normal. I think it's a cracker. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's a process. I think I was quite mentally drained after the United Way, so that it took it took the summer just to sort of do lots of little jobs with the company to to re-energize. And now mm. I feel. It feels like term time again, you know, September, let's go. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actively pushing a few things right now and we'll see, we'll see what happens. End of the day, it's not my decision if something gets made. All I can do is come up with ideas, treatments, pitch them and um, wait for somebody to bite on it or, or reject it. Oh, awesome, man. As you have mentioned about basically Robert De Niro, you know, you loved his films. I actually want to ask, what are some of your favourite personal, favourite documentaries? Oh, no. Why'd you ask me that? Oh, <laughs> uh, Because what's going to happen is I'm going to say a few now that just ping into my head. And then I'm going to go away tonight and think, geez, no, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say that? Okay. For some reason, I'm going to say The Square, which is about the Egyptian uprising. And that's just something that's pinged in my head. But it always stuck with me as a brilliant documentary. Ob doc, rough, gritty. Same with Cartel Land. I don't know if you've ever seen Cartel Land. A fantastic documentary. Oh. I'm going to have to come up with a sports one, aren't I? The Last Dance, um, maybe? Like The Last Dance a lot. Yeah, loved The Last Dance, mm. definitely. Uh, Hoop Dreams was probably the one that actually got me. When I was making the four-year plan, I remember... I watched the Hoop, Hoop Dreams doc a couple of times because it was filmed over a long period of time. I could relate to that and it helped me. Yeah. What else is there? What, throw some at me. I was going to say, uh, you're keen on like the sort of the 90s um, kind of like the, like the impossible job. Yeah, that was great. Obviously, the impossible job is, is definitely something that, I mean, again, it sort of, it probably wouldn't be, if you if you if you release that now, people will be like, that's okay. And people so you've got to remember it's over time, isn't it? And yeah. and that access was so rare back in that time. It's got to be viewed in, in the time, but I, I should probably revisit that if it's possible. I think it's on YouTube or somewhere. Yeah. Did you did you ever see Late Norian for a fiver? Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. That's a classic. Yeah. Uh, that is we spoke to John Sitton a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He <laughs> uh, was a good guest, really good guest, but he wasn't shy. Let's put it that way. We had to bring our dinner, obviously. <laughs> but hasn't he now, like, doesn't he view that doc with sort of, isn't he a bit sort of, because it's, I, I remember reading an interview where he said it sort of ruined his reputation. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think he got another job in football off the back of that, but. He's yeah. sort of, he's sort of still proud of it. As, as maybe I'm wrong, but no, I think you can see it. I think 
he's a very kind of layered guy, I think. Like, you can kind of see part of him is proud of it and he enjoys the kind of reverence it's given him. Mm. But also, part of him is a little bit, obviously, upset and whatnot that it tainted him somewhat. Um, but the fact he hasn't worked in football since then, I think... You can tell bugs him still. The fact he probably has been a bit hard done by but then, yeah, you know, I think he, he, has. Version of it is he felt that he didn't give a true account and all of the good stuff that he did behind the scenes. Um, but unfortunately, we live in a world where if someone sees your worst side, they're going to see that as the, you know, so it's a shame. Yeah, but, you know, he loves yeah. it. It's a shame. He's obviously got a lot of knowledge and, and stuff. So mm. who knows? He can still pick his brains about football, definitely. 20 like, years, isn't good it? lad, really like John. No, John, yeah, his heart's in the right place for sure. He's, definitely. He's, um, 25 years it's been now though since that so it's yeah that's that's the cancel culture and, and I think that that's why you know I said it about Flavio earlier and I would I would say it about John Sitton as well you've got to admire people that have the balls to allow a camera to show them to to peel back the layers and to, to front it up and it pisses me off that an audience feels it can feast off the entertainment of that and then cancel them at the end of it as yeah, a result yeah. that's 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 wrong yeah but that's human nature maybe well, another doc, again, it's an ob doc, is I, I always liked the um, the Lions documentary, the rugby one. I thought that was always, that was quite influential as well for me. I, I saw, um, Matt, you did a similar one that's on BBC at the moment. Yeah, um, we, so we, did, we did the Rugby League, which yeah. <laughs> was a disaster of a tour. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we uh, we did that for the B. We're doing a, a doc for the B at the moment on a boxer, Scottish boxer called Josh Taylor, which, you know, I'm just overseeing. So he's he's unified his weight. He's the only Brit ever to unify his weight division, and people don't know enough about him. He's, yeah, you know. So we're filming that at the moment. Um, so that's good. So still getting the commissions, thankfully, on on those that sort of thing. So yeah. No, brilliant, mate. Brilliant. If you had to give advice, it's going to be the last question, by the way. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but if you had to give any advice for anyone out there who is interested in filmmaking and directing. What advice would you give? Well, I think I think it's sort of twofold, really. I, I think I think get 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 your momentum and don't allow that. Don't ever allow a handbrake on your momentum. Yeah. So, you know, I always like liken it to maybe I'm showing my age. There was a really old game. I can't remember what it's called, Death Race or something. When I was on the ZX Spectrum, and you'd be racing through a forest. And you come up to a tree and you have to evade it and go right and then forward, and then left and forward. And that's filmmaking. You're going to come against these trees. And if you just keep going in the same line, you're going to smash into them. You've got to find your way around it, find your way, find your way, find your way through. Navigate your way through. And the other thing that probably I wish I'd have learned earlier is, is getting a bit more savvy about the industry itself. Mm. You know, how to have those conversations with investors, finance, the boring stuff. But you, you live or die on it at the end of the day. And, you know, I dread to think how I would have come across 10, 15 years ago on those conversations and, and how many projects probably failed because of my naivety on that. Yeah. And getting in the room with people and understanding that they have no, some people have no interest in your film from a creative point of view and being okay with that, not feeling upset or offended. All they want to know is, can I fill some airtime with it? Or can I make money off this? And it's horrible. But once you sort of compartmentalise that, it's actually quite liberating because you think, well, that's just their side of the industry. It's a, I've got to play my part. And luckily my part is the cool part. You know, I can yeah. get passionate about my part. I don't know how they get passionate <coughs> about their part. That's their problem. But I've got to understand it at the same time. Oh, I like that, man. That's pretty good advice for anyone that is listening to this. Where can the listeners find you on social media? Well, I'm not hugely active on social media, so you might follow me and then realise I don't post and unfollow me, but I'm on Twitter at Matt Hodgson, Matt Hodgson with one T, and the same on Instagram. Maybe I'll start trying to up my game on that and not just put pictures of my children up. Although I did put a picture of um, Eric with some sardines on recently, so, you know, I'll, I'll try to promise more, more of that golden content like that. It'll be coming your way. Just nice. very quickly, Matt, quick, tiny little anecdote when you met Eric Cantona and what you ordered at the restaurant. I've got to hear, yeah. Good question, Shane. <laughs> you want to know what my impression of Eric Cantona was? Uh, I met... No, you met Eric Cantona at a restaurant and he ordered, he ordered uh, sardines. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. brilliant. I, I, I didn't know whether it was a gag or not. I mean, he, um, 
he lives in Lisbon. So, you know, that is actually a bit of a, a, a staple diet of, of that country, isn't it, sardines? So you could argue it was just normal. But, you know, we were filming in the theatre and we are like, let's go and get some lunch. Oh, I know a fantastic restaurant up the road. So, you know, everything's fantastic with area. Oh, it's wonderful. You know. So we go walking up the road and no one recognises it, you know. It's, and he likes it like that. And um, we go to this restaurant and the, we're sitting down and the first thing he says is, you know, like in Portuguese, sardines. And uh, I'm with my producer, um, it was Portuguese. And he sort of nudges me and he's like, you know, like we're giggling like little kids. I'm hoping that Eric doesn't see us giggling. And then the plate comes over. And yeah, I, I took the opportunity to take a photo of it um, without him knowing, but I'm sure he doesn't mind. I'm sure he doesn't mind. But yeah, he, um, you know, and then, and then over that lunch, I, I told him that I support Sheffield Wednesday because it was Sheffield Wednesday that brought him to the UK originally. He he was bombed out of his club. I think it was Nice, I might be wrong. And he got a trial at Sheffield Wednesday. And because it was snowing, they could only play indoors in this trial game. And he got the hump that he was made to play in like a sort of indoors game. And Trevor Francis had done, offended him. And they asked him for another week. And he said, I'm not going to do another week. But at that trial game, uh, uh, a representative from Leeds United was spying on it on, on on him and um he intercepted him on the way to the airport eric was like i'm going to the airport going back to france and he intercepted him and he asked invited him to leeds and said we'll sign you and that's how he signed for leeds and then obviously did really well there and then signed for man united the rest is history so i said well i support Sheffield wednesday like you know i'm still pretty bitter about what happened and he just <laughs> went Probably the luckiest escape of my life. <laughs> so crestfallen. I was like, well, it's hard to argue with that, Eric, but you've just killed me there. Yeah. I love it, man. Like, just just to hear, like, nothing but positive stuff about Eric Cantona. Like, I always have a soft spot for May night, especially Eric Cantona, a true legend. But thank you, Matt, for coming on today. It's been a blast. Really have enjoyed this interview. Especially talking about one of my favourite documentaries ever made, uh, The Four Year Plan. But you've made some superb work as well. So for everyone that's listened to this episode, thank you. There's going to be more episodes of What Do You Call It podcast coming out soon. Shane, thank you for being an awesome co-host. I'm going to have you back. Don't you worry, mate. Uh, But for now, everyone, have a good weekend and take care. The following podcast is brought to you by the Jonas Podcasting Network, found exclusively at wrestlingwithjonas.com.